If you missed it, this is what it looked like when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. officially announced that he would run as a third party candidate for president. I need my speech. You can't read anything. You can't read anything. Put him up speed up in front. Can you see What? Yeah. It's it's upside down. It's upside down. It's upside down. It's upside down. That is how RFK Jr. began his independent bid for the presidency last month. And that's kind of how it's been the whole time with RFK Jr. His campaign has been full of unfortunate stunts, like posting videos of himself doing shirtless push-ups for no apparent reason at all. He has trafficked in wild conspiracy theories that are more suited to the dark web or a Reddit page. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews. I don't know what happened on 9-11. I mean, I understand what the official explanation is. I understand that there is the sense. So there's doubt in your mind that al-Qaeda was responsible? Well, I know. I don't know. You know, I know that there's, I know there's strange things that happen. And yet, despite the ethno-immunity theories and 9-11 trutherism, there are still people in this country who think that RFK Jr. belongs in the White House. This week, the New York Times and Siena College released a poll of six key battleground states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. It found that in a three-way race, 24% of registered voters in those swing states picked RFK Jr. 33% chose Joe Biden, 35% chose Donald Trump. Digging a little deeper, that same poll found RFK Jr. beating both Joe Biden and Donald Trump among voters younger than 45. That was most pronounced among Americans aged 18 to 29. Kennedy at 34 percent, Biden at 30 percent, and Donald Trump at 29 percent. Another poll from Quinnipiac found Kennedy getting 22 percent of the vote in a three-way race, with Biden receiving 39 percent and Trump receiving 36 percent. Now, it is not that voters are all of a sudden true believers that 9-11 was an inside job or that COVID is a government bioweapon, but it does appear that voters— especially young voters, are unhappy with both of the likely nominees here and that a third-party candidate could have a real shot at disrupting this election. Enough so that the current president of the United States and the former president of the United States could lose a key voting block to a shirtless vaccine skeptic. Against that backdrop, we got this surprise announcement today. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin announced today that he is not running for re-election in West Virginia, and he hinted at what sure sounds like a potential third-party presidential run. That whole travel the country and talk to voters thing is real reminiscent of Hillary Clinton's listening tour in 2015 before she ran for president. 
Manchin's decision not to run for his Senate seat has immediately created problems for Democrats looking to keep control of the Senate in 2024. That is when the party will be defending seats in red states like Ohio and Montana. But a third party presidential bid from Joe Manchin, that complicates things on an entirely different level. If he decides to enter the race, Manchin will be joining at least three other independent candidates. But precisely because he is a mainstream political actor and a Democrat and not doing shirtless push-ups and talking about the immune systems of Ashkenazi Jewish people, Joe Manchin could significantly change the landscape of the 2024 race among a wider swath of voters in a way that even the other third-party candidates cannot. Which is why, according to The Washington Post, Republican Senator Mitt Romney has been pushing Manchin to give up on the idea of a presidential run, saying, I lobby continuously that it would only elect Trump. For now, all we know is that Joe Manchin is leaving the Senate to see if there is a movement to mobilize the middle. Joining me now are my friends Jennifer Palmieri and Mark McKinnon, co-hosts of Showtime's The Circus, which after eight great seasons will air its series finale on Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern. I say that with a tear in my eye. Um, and you're not a big crier, Alex. I'm not. So I'm very moved. I am emotional about it, but we're <laughs> going to get to it later after we've gotten through, well, equally emotional stuff, but in a different way. Um, thank you guys for being here. And Mark, I have to start with you because every time we wanted to interview Joe Manchin on the circus, <laughs> we'd say, can McKinnon get us Manchin? Now, listen, I know you know Joe Manchin. You have talked to Joe Manchin. You helped establish No Labels, uh, the sort of third-party independent organization that you are no longer affiliated with. Haven't been for 10 years, yes. to make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> Abundantly clear. But, I mean, how do you read the decision and the announcement on the part of Manchin today? Uh, it's no surprise to me. I mean, Manchin's always been thinking about something like this, making a move like this. We knew that he was in jeopardy in West Virginia and that Jim Justice was going to be it was going to be a much stronger candidate as a Republican in that state, in the state that Trump wins huge. It was very lucky for Joe Biden and Democrats that Manchin was there when he was to help pass his key legislation. Yeah. Although find some that. people would say he also made it very difficult to pass some. Key well, sure, but but he but he, they wouldn't have passed the infrastructure bill without Joe Manchin. Yes. Not with Jim Justice, they wouldn't have had that, that bill. That is true. So signature legislation because of Manchin. Here's the thing. You know, he obviously has a history of no labels. They're familiar with each other. I, I haven't been associated in a long time, so I don't know what, if any, like, conversation. Can I say it again? I'm I not affiliated. Be, well, with I just don't want to speak for the organization, sure. and I don't know what's going on there, what conversations they've had. But but he has a history, and they that that could line up in some way. But here's the bottom line for me. I trust Joe Lieberman more than anybody in politics. He is the, a man of faith and a man of his word, and he says a couple of things. One. If we put this together and cannot win, we're not going to do it. We're going to pull it down. So Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin or whoever's on this, okay. this no labels ticket. You, you said Joe, Joe Lieberman. Lieberman. Um, and that no, was no, an... no, but Joe Lieberman is the chairman of oh, no okay, labels. Okay, 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 He's the okay. chairman of no labels. I see what you're saying. It's all making sense. Sorry, that. two Joes. <laughs> he's the chairman of no labels. And he is uh, and he's a man. Like I said, I trust anything he says. And he says, if we put together this ticket and it cannot clearly win, we're going to pull it down. The other thing he says is that the whole point of this exercise is to ensure that Donald Trump is not reelected. Mm -hmm. So there's another plan B that they could do. Now, this is kind of McKinnon going rogue, but they, they, they could <laughs> just happens. they could put popular Republicans on the no labels ballot in five key swing states and take votes away from Trump and throw the election Well, away. right. But just as it pertains to Manchin, right? Like, I think there is a certain segment of the Democratic electorate that heard this Manchin announcement and their hearts dropped, right? I mean, yeah. it's been a 
it's been a week for Democrats. The beginning of the week with the poll oh numbers, yes. right? And Roller then and then the baby. high of Tuesday night, the Democratic yeah. platform remains sound and strong, but still. Voters are on the alert. They are showing up everywhere. They're voting for Democrats. Like, it's like fall of 22 still. Yes, but there, and now. there is a question about how how much Joe Biden and the Democratic platform are one in 2024, whether the, the distaste for abortion restrictions and many other cultural wedge issues that the Republicans have dreamed up are enough to translate into strong support for Joe Biden. I got to read this statement from the White House to you, Jen. Joe, Gail, and the entire Manchin family should feel proud of the senator's service to West Virginia and to our country. I look forward to continuing our work together to get things done for the American people, says Joe Biden to Joe Manchin. Our work together, Jen. It's amazing. Subtext, yeah. please don't run against me. Yeah, and it is, um, I mean, you know, when in 2016, Jill Stein, all it took was Jill Stein in the running as the Green Party candidate. Uh, her margin of victory in, um, or her, her the margin, the vote that she got in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania was enough to get those states to Donald Trump. So now we have RFK Jr., Jill Stein, Cornell West, and possibly Joe Manchin. Yeah. So it is, I mean, Joe Manchin getting in this race, that it, the whole thing explodes. We are in a very different situation. Now, having said that, there is zero evidence that there is uh, grassroots support in America for a Joe Manchin yes. specific candidacy, right? You know, you can't concoct these kind of candidacies in a laboratory in Washington, Washington D.C. group, right? This is there needs to be some uh, movement among grassroots that they want someone like him. And you know, my view is there is a centrist that people can vote for in the presidential primary and the presidential election. His name is Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, the the agenda that he has put forward, the agenda that he has passed, the agenda he's advocating for. It is right down the middle of mainstream America and supported by a big majority of American people. You already have that. I just don't see what the theory is with a mansion uh, candidacy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? Does he siphon votes from Biden or Trump? And we know from polling, if you believe it, Biden's problems are with younger voters and voters of color. Joe Manchin <laughs> Not is, exactly his that's not right. That's not Joe, Joe Manchin's bread and butter. So is yeah. this... Does this hurt Trump more than Biden if Joe Manchin does? Well, listen, I, I think the same as, as Lieberman has said about the no labels ticket. I think the same is true at the end of the day for Joe Manchin. Now, he's a poker player. He'll take it right up to the line. But at the end of the day, I do not believe that he will want his legacy to be that he helped Donald Trump get reelected. He's yes. a good poker player. You're right about that, Kat. But That's I mean, true. he yeah, I do wonder. I mean, I do wonder if there's something. Let me just talk about the Senate before we get into a big existential discussion about the middle and America. But I mean, there is the very real the looming reality that Democrats could lose the Senate in 2024, Jen, right? I mean, yeah. there is almost no, there is a Joe Manchin seat's going to go to a Republican. Right. I mean, we've kind of been, we've came to terms with that a while ago, that it was likely Jim Justice is going to run against him, and then he was going to be very hard to, for him to defeat somebody like that. And so then it means the Democrats have to, like, run the table on everything else. That means they have to win it. Kirsten Sinema, um, you know, that that seat needs to be held by her or by a Democrat. That means... Um, John Tester has to hold in Montana. I think there's a decent chance of that. Uh, Sherrod Brown's going to win in Ohio. There are very hard red states that uh, Democrats have to hold in order to hold on to the Senate. When you talk about, I mean, not Sherrod Brown, but when you think about Kristen Sinema and John Tester and even Joe Manchin, it also speaks to a certain reality of modern American politics, Jen, which is the Democratic tent has gotten real big, right? As the Republican Party has shrunk 
to a smaller and smaller group of the sort of MAGA acolytes, the Democratic tent has expanded bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's almost sort of like it's sort of plainly obvious that if any if either side's going to shed centrists at this point, it's going to be the Democratic Party. This just seems to be a natural extension of how big and unwieldy the tent has gotten to some degree. Uh, but, you know, individual candidates make uh, they, they shape their own races. And you saw that with, you know, you saw that with Andy. Bash- uh, Kat was down was in, in Kentucky, Kentucky yeah. for the Andy Bashir race. Um, you certainly see that with Sherrod Brown, John Tester. I mean, Montanans know who he they they know who he is. And these and these candidates are very adept at working really hard to communicate within their own state about about who they are. And that's what they would have to do. John Tester knows from tractor poles. Uh, yeah, that's a yes, that's he a, does. One of my favorite <laughs> scenes on the circus. That, John Tester saving dig, me, digging you out of a flat tire, right? Uh, that's John Tester <laughs> for <his> you. <laughs> um, I want to ask you guys both uh, because w- when we talk about American politics, it's impossible to talk about. It's impossible to avoid conversations about things we've done on the circus or that you've done on the circus, whether it's having John Tester give you a ride on his tractor or chasing Joe Manchin down on his houseboat in Washington, (laughs) D.C. These are things that actually happen for people that watch the circus. You guys have had a front row seat. I was there for a little bit of it um, watching American politics. And I wonder whether you think that as much as we talk about how Joe Manchin could change the race or not, whether you think that conventional wisdom even still applies anymore or whether no, we are not. even, in, you know, like we talk about what we think is going to happen. Well, I don't know. Listen, I mean, think about conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was that this show would be one and done. We were going to go, you know, cover the Hillary Clinton for president. Campaign. Right. And then the circus <laughs> would just refer to one presidential race and not all of them. Well, that we would cover that race <laughs> yeah. and it'd be, we'd be one and done. And how interesting would the uh, Hillary Clinton presidency be? Probably not that interesting in a really good way. But three weeks in, they said the circus hadn't stopped, keep going. And now 130 episodes later. But part of it is just that it was surprise after surprise after surprise after surprise. Yeah. I mean, if we if we pitched this as a as a fictional script, they would have thrown us out. Yeah, I do feel like conventional wisdom's gone, though, Alex. You know, and I feel like that night in Atlanta. Remember, in January fifth, twenty twenty one, in Atlanta. Yes. Alex and I were both there covering uh, John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock. They won. We had this great conversation. It was this about, feeling of like, well, we are at a different point in American politics. Democracy is back, and it wasn't just that Democrats won, although I was excited about that, but that. So many people voted and they voted in a runoff and it was more than ever before. And Biden had won and Trump was not going to be able to steal the White House away from him. And then the next morning, it was like the bottom fully fell out. Yeah. And that is when I felt like there are just, you know, you can look at very recent history to see like 2022 and what motivated people to turn out then. But to think that you can look back 20 or 30 years and predict how things are going to go based on past experience, I think we're at a very different time. You can say Ross Perot and Jill Stein all you want, but who really knows anything anymore about where we're headed? Nobody knows nothing about nothing. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen, folks, I'm I'm sorry that we won't have the circus to tune into on Sunday nights at seven regularly, but I'm thrilled that this means maybe you'll be in New York City and available to join me on set more often. <laughs> well, stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, stay yes, tuned. I will stay tuned. Um, and thank you for joining me and congratulations. Thank you for all you did for the circus. Oh, you were the straw that, straw that stirred the circus and really... <laughs> the cocktail swizzle stick. It, it, it wouldn't have been the circus without you. You, oh, you really helped make, make it the success I that it love was. You. Thank you. God love you, as Joe Biden says. John, John Palmieri, Mark McKinnon, thank you for joining me tonight, my friends. And do not forget to tune into the series finale of The Circus this Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Showtime. 
We have a lot more this evening, including an in-depth look at the on-again, off-again relationship between Donald Trump and Fox News, which is apparently on again. Brian Stelter joins me with a preview of his new chronicle about the network of lies. Plus, special counsel Jack Smith previews a big piece of his case against Trump and Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. So this week, we got a very interesting preview of a very important case, Jack Smith's trial strategy and the federal indictment of Donald Trump's efforts to undermine the 2020 election. Last month, Trump's lawyers asked the judge in the case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, to dismiss language from the indictment that linked Trump to the violence of January 6th. And the special counsel's team responded to that this week, calling Trump's request a meritless effort to evade the indictment's clear allegations that the defendant is responsible for the events at the Capitol on January 6th. The defendant knew that the crowd that he had gathered in Washington for the certification was going to be angry. Despite this knowledge, or perhaps because of it, the defendant told knowing lies about the vice president's role in the congressional certification and directed the crowd to march to the Capitol and fight. The special counsel plans to join two narratives here. One, that Trump lied about election fraud. And two, that he incited violence as a last resort to stay in power. This is from Politico today. By combining the Trump allegations of election fraud with the riot— Jack Smith is unlocking a mountain of case law developed in the January 6th riot cases to tie Trump more clearly to the violence than he has been to date. In short, Smith is casting Trump as one of the 1,200-plus riot defendants who have already been charged. Joining me now is Mary McCord, former assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., and former acting assistant attorney general for national security. She is also, of course, the co-host of the MSNBC podcast, prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary, it is great to see you tonight. We have not talked enough about the filings this week from the special counsel's office. This one to me seems very significant in that it ties all the, those 1,200 plus Jan 6 cases to the looming federal uh, trial against Donald Trump on January 6 charges. Can you explain a little bit the significance of, of uniting those, those two, as they call it, mountains of case law? Yeah, you know, first I have to just say it's kind of funny to me how this has come up because a motion to dis- 
to strike parts of an indictment is really kind of a silly motion. It isn't made very often. The indictment isn't even given to the jury. And whether the court strikes it or not, and I don't think the court will for all the reasons that Jack Smith argues, it's kind of meaningless when it comes to trial. What this may show is that Trump is planning to actually file a motion in Lemonade to actually prohibit the introduction of the evidence that Jack Smith has now said in this its response that he will be introducing. But I think, you know, what we're seeing now is really just a further explanation of what was already in the indictment, right? The indictment showed that multi-pronged effort, beginning with the lies, the pressure on state legislators, the pressure uh, on the fraudulent electors to meet, the pressure on Vice President Pence, the culmination with the riot during which Trump himself added fuel to the fire. Remember it, 224, well into the riot, uh, Trump tweets out that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And the U.S. demands the truth. I'm looking down at the indictment. So already it did tie him to the violence. But here we're seeing exactly what the government says it intends to introduce. Right. Video evidence, geolocation evidence, audio evidence, things to show the things that they argue are relevant, meaning they they tend to prove evidence more probable than not and relevant. They are in they are important to show the motive and intent of Donald Trump. Things that he did during the riot, things that he said after shows he intended all along to obstruct that official proceeding. He intended all along for his conduct to result in uh, overriding the will of the people and that it provides important context as well for explaining the entire memory charge with three different conspiracies. So I think it's it's a natural outgrowth of what was in the indictment, but we see it in sort of much greater detail as a preview of what that trial, what the evidence will show at trial. Yeah, there's a particular when you talk about the evidence that Smith is planning to introduce that maybe Trump would like to see blocked. There's a particular part of it that I thought was intriguing. Um, This is a quote from the government's response to Trump's motion. Testimony will establish that the defendant was informed of, though indifferent to, the fact that the vice president had to be evacuated from the Senate to a secure location. Although the defendant knew that the certification proceedings had been interrupted and suspended, he rejected multiple entreaties to calm the rioters and instead provoked them by publicly attacking the vice president. Mary, that sure sounds like someone has testified about what was happening in the West Wing or in the White House during the insurrection, what was going on with Donald Trump. It's kind of a a black hole in terms of information. And my mind immediately went to Mark Meadows, who we know is cooperating or has talked to Jack Jack Smith at least three times and has been granted immunity in all of this. I mean, certainly this representation shows that the government believes it can prove up that Donald Trump was well aware of what was happening, not just based on watching the videos, you know, as we've heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, that he was watching a video, or I should just say live television of the riots, but also that he was well aware of the the evacuation of Mike Pence, as you say. And so they wouldn't be putting in there if they didn't have the proof. And I think, you know, your your speculation that it's Meadows is, is probably as good as any, because certainly we know from Cassidy Hutchinson that he was in contact with the president, you know, throughout that day. I do wonder, Mary, uh, the prosecution would also like to know whether Trump is going to assert an advice of counsel defense, something we talked a little bit last night. But if he does assert that, then that entitles Jack Smith to even more evidence, does it not? Including correspondence between Trump and his lawyers, several of whom have already pleaded guilty down in Georgia. 
That's right. And so, you know, as Judge Chutkin ruled when she said, I'm going to give you some more time before you have to give prior notice. The government wanted that notice in December. She says, I'm going to I'm going to let it be in January. Trump himself has already argued Trump's lawyers have already offered to provide uh, notice in advance by January 15th, I believe, is the day she said. But I'm going to require that if he provides notice that he's going to rely on advice of counsel because that waives attorney kind of client privilege, he has to at the same time disclose to the government all of the communications that he intends to rely on, communications with his lawyers that he intends to rely on to make that advice of counsel defense, as well as anything, any communications that he doesn't intend to rely on, but that are relevant to it. So things that might detract from um, any advice of counsel defense. And the judge also discusses about how an advice of counsel defense or the government in its in its briefing has discussed requires that you disclose all pertinent facts to your lawyer when you're seeking advice, and then you rely on that advice advice in good faith. So it remains to be seen with this order and with the judge's ruling, whether in fact that's that's a defense that the president will, the former president will decide to rely upon. Mm-hmm. A lot remains to be seen, doesn't it? Mary McCord, thank you for your time and thoughts tonight, Mary. It's great to see you. My pleasure. Coming up, Fox News paid a whopping $787 million settlement to avoid further embarrassing revelations on the eve of its trial with Dominion Voting Systems. But Brian Stelter's new book has the inside scoop on that settlement, Fox's firing of Tucker Carlson, its pivotal role in promoting the big lie, and the network's current relationship with Donald Trump. Brian Stelter joins me coming up next. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. This is the moment that has haunted Fox News hosts and Fox executives for years. What is this happening here? Why is Arizona blue? Did we just call it? Did we make a call in Arizona? Well, let's see. Now, there's a check mark. Did our decision desk make it? Arizona, 11 electoral votes? Yes, we can. Okay, if that's the case, then guys. Uh, When we come back, we'll fill this in. If you lose Arizona, where do you win now? It was late into the night on election night in 2020 when Fox News called the state of Arizona for Joe Biden. And the problem wasn't that the call was wrong. It was that it was right. 
That call broke the red mirage that Trump had been basking in all night, and Trump was furious. His followers were, too. So they stopped watching. The New York Times got its hands on audio recordings of Fox's CEO, Suzanne Scott, complaining that if we hadn't called Arizona, our ratings would have been bigger. After that, Fox's audience started going to places that were telling them what they wanted to hear, that Donald Trump could still win. On December 7th, Fox's further right competitor, Newsmax, beat Fox in the ratings for the very first time ever. And Fox wanted its audience back badly. So it gave the people what they wanted. As Brian Stelter reports in his new book, Network of Lies, Fox needed a ratings rebound. And some producers explicitly said Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell would provide that. Any day with Rudy and Sidney is guaranteed gold. Fox executives discussed segments featuring Trump's lawyers and their election lies as tent poles, meaning they spiked the ratings so visibly it looked like a tent pole. The way Stelter puts it in his new book, the lesson Fox learned from that Arizona call was not to tell its audience things it didn't want to hear and definitely not to say anything that could be seen as bad for Donald Trump. That lesson went well beyond Fox's coverage of the 2020 election. After the January 6th attack, Tucker Carlson tried to brush off the gravity of the insurrection and went out of his way to avoid pinning any of the blame for it on Trump. Carlson's executive producer explained that in text by referencing that Arizona decision, we are threading a needle that has to be thread because of the dumb bleeps at Fox on Election Day. We can't make people think we've turned against Trump. One of the other big revelations from Stelter's book is that at one point, Fox really did try to ditch Trump. Two days after January 6th, Fox's chairman and owner, Rupert Murdoch, emailed a former Fox executive that Fox News was very busy pivoting and that he wanted to make Trump a non-person. Stelter writes that that was not an empty statement. For a while, Trump's claims about Fox opposing him were not a conspiracy theory, but an actual plan. Rupert really did try to make Trump a non-person. That meant lots of little changes, like a no-phoner edict, meaning that Donald Trump could no longer just phone in to Fox shows whenever he wanted. But in a bigger sense, that meant turning toward a new conservative, Governor Ron DeSantis. Needless to say, that did not work. Trump's legal troubles mean he is still constantly in the news, and he is his party's frontrunner for the presidency. But most importantly of all, Fox's audience still loves Trump. A Murdoch family friend told Stelter what the dynamic is now. Rupert hates Trump and can't believe we're going to end up back up, end up back with Trump. But Fox seems resigned to welcoming Trump back into the fold. This summer, Fox News' CEO and its president were spotted at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club, reportedly begging Trump to participate in Fox's Republican presidential debate. They just couldn't risk not having him on their air. Brian Stelter joins me live to talk about all of this coming up next.
On the very first page of Brian Stelter's new book, Network of Lies, the author launches into Fox News's role in promoting the big lie and the network's culpability for the events of January 6th. The coup attempt could not have happened without the help of Fox News, he writes. All of the indictments Donald Trump faced in 2023 related in one way or another to the misguided advice, misinformation and mendacity of the Fox machine. Stelter writes that now, almost three years later, and after a rupture and a rapprochement with Trump, Fox is the black widow at the center of the web of lies that perverts American politics. Joining us now is Brian Stelter, author of Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the battle for American democracy, which goes on sale November 14th. I'm thrilled to have my own copy right here, <laughs> oh, Brian. I'll sign it for you. Thank yes, you, please do. Great to be um, here. First of all, you know, people say a lot of things about how Fox is poisoning democracy, but you have a sort of granular assessment and, and deep reporting about how literally Fox is feeding Trump the lies that then in turn lead to the coup attempt. Can you talk about that? And they knew and they knew what they were doing. And that's why these emails and texts are so important and so explosive. Some were published last spring, but I had to write this book because there were so many other messages in this document dump in Wilmington, Delaware, that needed to see the light of day. Just for people to be clear, that is the discovery from the Dominion. That's uh, right, because Dominion's lawyers were able to get inside and read all of the emails with Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and read what they were really saying at the time. I've never seen any major media company in the United States exposed the way the Fox was exposed. And we can talk later about the other companies being sued. These cases are still going on. But when it comes to Fox, it is remarkable to see how they seeded the big lie for Trump. You know, the big lie didn't just happen in November of 2020. It was made to happen. Maria Bartiromo went on the air, told a tale about Dominion with the help of Sidney Powell, yeah. the Trump-aligned lawyer. And then four days later, Trump started saying it. He thanked Sean Hannity on his Twitter for telling him all about Dominion. So it was Fox that seeded the story that gets us down the path toward January 6th. What stuns me is the degree to which um, Donald Trump is at once the puppet master and the puppeteer. Sorry, the, pup, the puppet itself, right? I, yeah, yeah, I get when, that. Yeah. When he seems to have exhausted his utility, for, right? Exhausted his utility for Fox News after January 6th. Yeah. There's this brief moment where they're like, oh, forget that guy, never mind. And including... Sean Hannity. Yes, his you, you greatest have, ally. Yes. yes. Sean Hannity, who is the sort of shadow chief of staff. Shadow chief of staff. In the White House, right, you have reporting. Yeah. John, Sean Hannity, um, after January 6th, uh, Suzanne Scott, Fox's CEO, yeah. tells Rupert Mur- Murdoch that Hannity wants to help lead the 75 million forward away from Trump. It's one of my favorite quotes from the book because the 75 million refers to Trump's voters in 2020. And here's Sean Hannity saying, I'm ready to take them in a better direction, a more reality-based, more truthful direction. And not only is he saying it, the boss is saying it to Rupert Murdoch. The entire network is behind this plan to move away from Trump. Trump's not wrong. There really was a conspiracy against him inside Fox. But somehow between 2021 and now, that's totally broken down. And Trump has regained power within the right-wing media. Can we talk a little about the the network's current relationship with Fox as um, with Trump as you see it. I mean, he's obviously the front the he's the prohibitive front runner in the presidential race. He's yeah. as strong as he has been among the Republican electorate. Does Fox? I mean, 
is are all is all forgiven. And to what degree <laughs> do, you, do you feel like Fox feels like it needs to actively curry favor with Trump? I ask that not just because that's interesting in and of itself, but because, you know, there's going to be a January 6, 2025. Yes. And there is an effort to curry favor with Trump. We saw that with the Bedminster meeting you mentioned, going out to Bedminster, asking him to do the debate. Fox gave up on that eventually, but there was definitely an attempt to, to re- resume the relationship. Uh, you know, there's another quote in the book that hasn't been published before. Rupert Murdoch saying, I had Trump on the phone in 2020, and Trump says to me, you're 90% good at Fox, but I need you to be 100% good. And Rupert says, you can't have that. Of course, that's very self-aggrandizing for Rupert, right? Blowing off the president of the United States saying you can't have 100%. But the reality is Fox is 100% in Trump's corner. And if it's not now, it will be by the general election. That's the reality, not just for Rupert, but his son Lachlan, who officially takes control next week. Do you feel like there's any, I mean, it's just staggering that there's no semblance of contrition on the part of Fox in terms of what it has done here. In fact, if anything, it's a doubling down on on helping spread the the misinformation, the lies and 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 really being guilty of mendacity. I sometimes feel like the country is facing memory loss, suffering memory loss, or at least some folks, some, some subset of the country has forgotten what the years 2017 through 2020 were actually like, that maybe it was too traumatic to be willing to remember. We've buried some of those experiences. Because when you look at these polls that showed Trump ahead of Biden with more leadership skills, with greater mental acuity, you just think, have we all forgotten about 2017 and 2018? Well, in part. Some people have, because it's convenient for those Fox stars to pretend that those scandals never happened. Can we talk, but the scandal, I mean, you made the point at this outset of our discussion here that the the lawsuits are not over for Fox. I mean, far from it. We got a, a huge tranche of information from the Dominion lawsuit, but there would have been more if the case had gone to trial. There is a smart, Smartmatic lawsuit, another a voting system, that was filed before the Dominion lawsuit and right. is for an even bigger dollar amount, I believe $2.7 billion. Are we yeah. going to get a sort of X-ray into Fox News in the course of the Smartmatic lawsuit? That case is taking longer, but the outcome may be the same. Uh, There are more depositions happening. There will be more discovery. There will be more documents published. Maybe there will be a settlement. I would bank on a settlement, but maybe for more than 800 million that Dominion was able to obtain. Smartmatic's lawyer told me, look, the company is a bigger company. It suffered bigger damages. Uh, Fox disagrees. They say the damages number 2.7 billion is way inflated, but that fight's going to happen. The point here is that the the courts are where big lie accountability is happening. The Trump trials you cover every day, the same time those are happening, we're having this parallel civic a civil litigation against Fox, Newsmax, Mike Lindell, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. You know, I was interviewing the smart, the Dominion lawyers again this week. They are so busy with all these other cases. You'd think they'd be off a vacation on a beach somewhere after making $800 million for their client. No, they have a lot of other cases still pending, but they're in Washington. And you know why it's taking so long? There's so many January 6th yeah. cases still in the Washington courts. There are so many rioters still being held accountable. The handiwork of, of, of Fox <laughs> News. Is it going to change under Lachlan Murdoch? Or your expectation is that profit still reigns supreme? Profit reigns supreme more than ever, because in some ways, some parts of that business are shrinking. It's a harder business to own than it was 10 years ago. They're under more pressure than they were when Rupert was on top. Oh, Brian, it's a distressing read, but it is an essential read. Thank you, my friend. It actually ends on a hopeful note. Yes. Many of us are in on it now. 
Yeah, we Thanks are. to these emails. People know the truth. I think actually that's a hopeful, hopeful. Note yes. And it actually it's there, there's great utility in having exhausting reporting on those emails in one place in in such lyrical. Some people are still capable of shame, actually. Some some not all of them, but some of them. Brian Stelter, thank you, Thanks. my friend. Again, the book is Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the battle for American democracy. Brian, thank you. We are going to have one more story for you tonight. Reports of President Biden's deepening frustration with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes joins me on that coming up next. Today, the White House announced that Israel has agreed to pause its military operations inside Gaza every day for four hours. The pauses could allow for more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza and could also be used in efforts to release the more than 200 hostages currently being held by Hamas. As the Israeli military moves deeper into Gaza City, the health ministry there says Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 10,000 people and injured more than 25,000. President Biden made it clear today that he does not support a ceasefire inside Gaza, but is pushing for a longer humanitarian pause. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor under President Obama. Ben, thank you for being here. And I just wonder what you think of a four hour pause and its sufficiency. I mean, Alex, it'll marginally help get more humanitarian assistance in. Um, I mean, the, the trickle that's been getting in is only a fraction of what got into Gaza in terms of trucks before the conflict on a regular day. And obviously the humanitarian needs are much greater. And talking to people in, in various governments, you know, my understanding is a lot of the proposals called for a four or five day pause so that you could get a significant, a massive amount of humanitarian assistance in so that you could get wounded people out into Egypt and so that you could try to negotiate some additional hostage releases. So I think this is a, a you know, a, a, a compromise and it's a very Netanyahu move to, to not really grant the U.S. president what he is recommending, but to do something that is just enough to make somewhat of a difference, uh, but is not probably enough to allow for a lot of humanitarian aid to get in and for those hostage negotiations to take place. Yeah, you talk about the sort of strange dance between Netanyahu and Biden on all of this. And there are multiple reports this week that Biden officials are anonymously expressing frustration with Israel. And one wonders why Biden officials are still anonymously expressing frustration with Israel. Can you elaborate on that as someone who has spent time inside the circle? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of different ways that you can approach uh, a Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's, you know, a, a right wing figure who's been, you know, willing to buck American presidents, particularly Democratic American presidents in the past. Um, you know, Barack Obama was more willing, I think, to publicly disagree and, and to send a message to the world um, that, you know, he might be in a different place in Netanyahu on certain issues. We can debate whether that worked or not. Um, but Joe Biden's view has been, uh, I want to fully embrace Prime Minister Netanyahu in public uh, and voice disagreements in private, and that that might give me more leverage, therefore, to affect his his behavior and his actions. Uh, and we've seen that approach on display with uh President Biden going over to Israel and literally hugging uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think that what you're hearing on background is the frustration that despite all that full embrace of Israel, you still have a reluctance uh, from Bibi Netanyahu to take on board serious U.S. concerns about the humanitarian considerations uh, in Gaza, about the global reaction 
uh, to the scale of the humanitarian suffering that we're seeing and the civilian casualties we're seeing and, and what Tony Blinken is hearing on his trips in the Arab world, which is that they really need to see uh, a more concerted effort to avoid civilian casualties and help the people of Gaza. I don't think, though, that that kind of frustration expressed kind of on background in the U.S. media reaches the global audience that is probably the concern of the Biden White House. And so the question is, you're starting to see some public differentiation. You've had Netanyahu say he wants essentially de facto occupation of Gaza on the back end of an Israeli military operation. Joe Biden has said he doesn't think that's a good idea. And Tony Blinken has said that he wants to see the Palestinian Authority in charge of Gaza as well as the West Bank. So I, I think increasingly the U.S. is going to support Israel. Uh, Joe Biden is going to support Israel. Uh, he's made that very clear. But there are these differences that are becoming more apparent by the day. Could you foresee a, an actual a break, a public criticism of Israel on the part of this administration at any point? I think knowing President Biden, like he's going to have Israel's back in this military operation, that's his default position. I do think on some of these specific issues, like the provision of humanitarian assistance into Gaza, like whether it's uh, worth exploring negotiations to secure the release of hostages, and particularly, Alex, I think on the back end of this, the U.S. does not want to see a reoccupation of Gaza by Israel. They don't want to see a mass displacement of people out of Gaza. They would like to see the Palestinian Authority um, take control of Gaza, and they'd like to see some effort to have a Palestinian state. Keep in mind that this Israeli government, led by Bibi Netanyahu with a very far-right coalition, does not even support the creation of a Palestinian state. Yeah. So I think where the difference is going to be the biggest is on what is the ultimate objective of this military operation. Yes, Israel wants to destroy Hamas, but the question is what happens to the two million people that are in Gaza who can't leave, and then who governs Gaza on the back end of that? I think that's where the biggest difference is going to uh, eventually become increasingly public. Ben Rhodes, thank you for your insight, my friend. That is our show for tonight.